Hey folks, Dreadnought here from the Faith Blind Council podcast. Myself, Frater Yara Marud, and Seder Cologne have been working for over a year to produce a show that talks about practicing chaos magic with three practicing chaos magicians. We cover all sorts of topics from deep paradigm dives on subjects such as Gnosticism and Southern American conjure to techniques such as divination and meditation and even sex magic. <laughs> but don't take my word for it. Check out this clip from one of our latest episodes. But like you mentioned, Ace House being like the house of shame, like where I have totally like, been to the house of shame you're, before. Where you're, yeah, Waffle House. Thinking, yeah. <laughs> but the only thing I have in my my Ace House is um, my my moon sign. So what's, what's yes. interesting about there being kind of shame associated with your moon sign and your emotions is that your moon is in Virgo, right? Virgos, yes. Virgos are the like the sign that are the most critical of themselves. Like you, it's very hard to hurt a Virgo's feelings because you will never say something meaner to a Virgo than a Virgo says to themselves when they're by themselves. For this and so much more discussion about magic in general, be sure to check out the Faith Blind Council podcast at faithblindpodcast.com. You can also find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and pretty much wherever else you get your podcasts at. Thank you so much for checking out our show, and we hope to see you soon. XV Planis is part of the Green Mushroom Podcast Network. Welcome to XV Planets. Greetings, friends, fiends, and lovers of strange and wondrous things. Welcome back to XV Planets. Transmitting from the Black Lodge, as always, I am your host, Flood, and as always, I am very happy to be here to dive further into the weird with you. Tonight we wrap up our series of interviews before the next case file with special guest James Willis of Ghosts of Ohio. We're going to dive into that conversation here in just a bit, but first, a little house cleaning and some nerd alerts. The next main installment of Season 2, as many of you are already aware, will be Waverly Hills Sanatorium. This is easily the largest subject we've ever taken on, and it's going to go to some very weird places, and much further beyond our own investigation of it. That series will kick off on July 9th, with a new installment being released every two weeks. There will likely be some bonus content unrelated to Waverly released in between a few of those main episodes, and there will be a lot of new extra material over on the Patreon as well. Now as far as nerd alerts go, XV Planets correspondent Megan blew up my inbox this week, and it's far too much for me to share here uh, for the sake of time, but I'm going to touch on a few of the big headlines I found fascinating. For a complete list of links on all the info she shared with me this week, look for the link in the show notes. First up, quantum computing. Australian researchers have announced the manufacturing of a quantum circuit at an atomic scale claiming it integrates all of the necessary components of a classical computer chip, but at a much, much smaller scale. Once assembled, the tiny processor was able to complete a tough task that classical computers struggle to complete, marking a significant breakthrough in the pursuit of scalable and practical quantum computing. This is a major breakthrough, says Silicon Quantum Computing founder Michelle Simmons. 
Today's classical computers struggle to simulate even relatively small molecules due to the large number of possible interactions between atoms. Development of SQC's atomic scale circuit technology will allow the company and its customers to construct quantum models for a range of new materials, whether they be pharmaceuticals, materials for batteries, or catalysts. It won't be long before we can start to realize new materials that have never existed before. I love it, folks. Each week we get closer and closer to making some elements of science fiction a reality. Let's just hope we're choosing the right ones to pursue. Hmm. Next up, we have an update on the Gaia spacecraft. The European Space Agency's Gaia Space Observatory, which launched in 2013, has long surpassed its goal of charting more than a billion stars in the Milky Way. On June 13th, the mission extended that map into new dimensions, releasing more detailed measurements of hundreds of millions of stars, plus, for the first time, asteroids, galaxies, and the dusty medium between stars. Data in the new survey, which were collected from 2014 to 2017, are already leading to some discoveries, including the presence of surprisingly massive star quakes on the surfaces of thousands of stars. But more than anything, the release is a new tool for astronomers, one that will aid their efforts to understand how stars, planets, and entire galaxies form and evolve, hopefully helping to solve several long-standing puzzles about our universe. Other highlights in Megan's science data dump, thank you again, include massive spinning cosmic filaments that may make up the majority of the universe's mass. I can't even begin to give a description that will do that subject justice, but let's just say if you've ever seen Contact, that scene when Jodie Foster is barreling through the tendrils of the cosmos, yeah, think of it like that. That's definitely something I hope to be diving a little further into later this year once I get some more information about it. And last to mention here this week is the announcement of the end of an era, or at least the beginning of the end. Voyager 1 and 2 are slowly being powered down. Control is turning off non-essential functions in hopes of extending its main functionality hopefully up to and past 2030, but it does appear that within a decade or so the Voyager vessels will go beyond our range to control and communicate with. One could say that this is a sad thing, but when you take into consideration that the Voyagers were launched in the 70s and were only expected to last about four years, I call this a major win. So, V'ger, we wish you the best. Please don't return in 200 years as a sentient being looking for your creators. Gene Roddenberry has shown us that that won't go well for anyone. For other tidbits of weird science, be sure to check out the list Meg's Mind Blowers in the show notes. Now, on and into the weird of the evening. Conveniently, that would be James A. Willis, or Weird Willis to some, of My Strange and Spooky World and The Ghosts of Ohio. James is a paranormal investigator, Fortean adventurer, and author with over three decades of experience in paranormal research. I've been familiar with the work of Weird Willis for a few years now, and originally I had reached out to him to contribute to our upcoming series on Waverly Hills. James had been there several times, and I wanted to discuss investigation methods on in such a massive location, as well as hear about some of his own personal experiences while within its walls. Well, we never really got to that part of the conversation, and while we will be having James back on for the Waverly series, the conversation we did end up having was a wonderfully unexpected detour. Tonight we'll get to hear a little bit more about James and his journey, then we'll discuss the evolution of his investigative techniques and why it pays to have a healthy level of skepticism when reviewing your own evidence. 
A brief note about this conversation. As many of you know, the Black Lodge has been experiencing some technical difficulties as of late, so there may be some sound quality issues mostly on my end throughout the course of this conversation. My apologies for any digital artifacts, but rest assured the problem has been resolved moving forward. I'm very happy this conversation took the turns that it did. So without further shenanigans, Hattie, would you roll that interview, please? All right, folks, I'm very pleased to welcome to the show James Willis, uh, best known for uh, being the creator of Ghosts of Ohio. I think that's that's kind of what you're... Your your champion, everyone knows you from that one, right? Uh, yeah, pretty much. Yep. <laughs> right. James, can you tell us just a little bit about yourself and how you got into all this? Sure. Yeah, happy to. Um, I grew up in um, Hudson Valley, Orange County of New York State, which um, set me down this weird path at a very early age because it was a it's an area that was sort of settled by the Dutch, so. From a very early age, I was exposed to a lot of those sort of folk tales and urban legends. And then as I got a little bit older, elementary school, all of a sudden, Washington Irving stories, everything from Rip Van Winkle, which he used as a setting there to most famously for me, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, um, which Terrytown was not too far from where I grew up. And the interesting thing about that is, well, we always had to take a field trip in elementary school out there. And right. I had a, a teacher that I never name, but I think I should because she set me down the weird path was she tried to convince us that the legend of Sleepy Hollow was a true story. And what she did is we had to read the story. And then when we went out there on the field trip, she showed us the bridge and all of the different, you know, the settings for the story and then took us into the cemetery and started pointing out some of the characters' grave sites. You know, their names were on the tombstones and I was blown away. And then, because I tend to devour books at a very early age, mm-hmm. I came to find out that, okay, she made that up. Washington Irvin, uh, he borrowed the setting and he borrowed some of the cool names from the tombstones. So that led me down the path of, okay, well, if that's not a true ghost story, what are the true ghost stories? And so I fell headlong into that whole finding the crossroads where ghost stories and folk tales and urban legends and the truth sort of intermingle. And then also being, um, from New York State, I was not far from all of these other weird things. I lived very close to the unofficial mafia dumping ground. <laughs> so growing oh, wow. up, there were all of these stories about finding, you know, on this dark secluded road, there was, you know, cars that were on fire and there was a, a chopped up body in the trunk or they had thrown these people in the lake. So I had all of those weird stories along with in the 70s, we had the son of Sam coming into it. You know, in the, oh, yeah, yeah, in the early yeah. 80s, there was a huge UFO flap, which became a, a book, Night Siege, where, you know, everybody was going out and looking for these the giant triangular. Yeah. yeah. Um, we had uh, Lake Champlain. We had Champ. So we had our own version of the Loch Ness Monster. So all of this you know, what's now become known as high strangeness was right out my back door. We were only about 
45 minutes from the Pine Barrens in New Jersey. So we could go looking for the Jersey, Jersey Devils. Devil. Yeah. So <laughs> it all just came crashing through. And at a very early age, I was nicknamed Weird Willis, you know, to kind of make fun out of me. But then um, I joined my first ghost group because that was my big love was always ghosts. And I got into the weird habit of, well, could some of these ghost lights or things that people say are UFOs, that's kind of like what people report as being an actual ghost, except it's higher up in the air. So are these things somewhat connected? Is right. a, a is a spook light really a ghost or is it a UFO? Is it a, you know, is it a, a fairy light? Is it? So there was just this big mix mixture going on. And, um, in 1985 is when I say that I first became a paranormal professional, whatever that is, but, um, <laughs> I'd been obsessed my whole life. So I use, um, 1985 because that's when I was 18. So I was unofficially a man, you know, and then ah. could say that, I, but, um, I joined my first ghost group and really it was just a bunch of friends and stuff that would go out looking for ghosts. Um, in the nineties, I moved to Georgia and became involved with ghost groups and looking for ghosts and just strange things down there. Um, the main factor in all of it was I grew up in New York next to what I thought was the crybaby bridge. And when I moved to Georgia and they said, Oh, the, the real crybaby bridge is right down here. And I'm like, no, that's in New York. And they were like, no, it's here. Um, which I came to find out when I moved to Ohio in 1999, I think I'm up to 35 crybaby bridges in Ohio alone. So, yeah. um, so I moved to <laughs> Ohio in North Carolina. Yeah. Too, they're, so. they're okay. all over the place, but that again was something that was intriguing to me because it was ghost stories and folklore and actual history sort of intertwining. Um, yeah. 1999, I moved to Ohio. And at that point I was just looking to get involved with an, you know, another ghost group and there weren't any. So I was naive and arrogant enough to think I'm going to start my own group. And so I started the ghosts of Ohio, um, called it ghosts because I wanted to kind of be like ghosts and that we were always there, but only the people who truly believed or truly needed us could find us. And mm -hmm. I made it ghost because it was plural and it sounded bigger than it was because it was, it was just me at the time. <laughs> um, and that's still going strong since 99. Um, in 2003, I think it was, I did a six month uh, investigation of an area known as Helltown in Ohio, which is just chock full of every urban legend you can think of. And I released a, um, an article about it that hit the news wire and all of a sudden everybody wanted to know about Helltown. And mm -hmm. I mentioned that because that's when um, the two Marks, Mark Wren and Mark Skirman from Weird New Jersey, were looking to put out a book called Weird US. And when they were typing weird, and they were just typing in weird and then add state here, when they typed in weird Ohio, they were getting <laughs> me from the ghosts of Ohio. Mm -hmm. which is interesting because I then picked up the moniker again, Weird Willis. But um, they contacted me. They wanted me to contribute the Helltown story and a few others to Weird US, um, which led to Weird Ohio, Weird Indiana, and several other weird books. Um, and then somewhere along the line, I was contacted by uh, Kent State University, 
who wanted to do a a ghost book, but they wanted it to have more of like a scholarly approach. Right. And they said, you seem to be the weird ghost guy in Ohio. Could you do a book for us? And I'd be like, oh yeah, I'd love it. I mean, it, it's very rare that a uh, quote unquote established university wants to do a ghost book. So right. I, yeah, I yeah. did Ohio's historic haunts. Um, so I'm kind of known for that, I guess. And then 16 books later, here I am still, <laughs> still doing the same thing I was doing in a, in, you know, the Hudson Valley many, many years ago. So, so yeah, I become known. I mean, they call me weird Willis. They call me every, the paranormal pappy because I've been doing this for so long, or they say that I'm the paranormal's best kept secret. And then other people are like, who, <laughs> who is this guy? Right. I've never heard of him, which I actually do like because, um, having done this for such a long time, um, I've seen the ebbs and flows in the paranormal community. And it feels like we're in a weird place right now where there's some people who have really good hearts who are really coming at it and they're new to it coming at it from, like I said, pure of hearts. (laughs) And I want to reach those people because there's a lot of other people that it seems to become, how do I become rich, famous and arrogant from doing this? And I'm like, no, this is not, this is not the no. Field you, for you, you don't. It that doesn't work like that. No, you're yeah. you're in this because you're really you're strapped in for the journey, and yeah. that's that's where I'd say that that we're at with this. Because like, I'm not sure if you listen to the show at all uh, before, but we actually go out and do investigations, yes. and we submit our um, you know our reports here, and we we try to keep a as much of a skeptical mind as possible because. If we take the time to do that, then the evidence that we do get, it's it's going to be a little bit more notable and, and something that might actually stand out. And I believe you're of the same mind as well. Yes. Yep. Yeah. So. I absolutely love that because it's, and you and I were chatting briefly about it earlier, is that I, I tell people who are my, I don't know, fans or like the work that I'm doing that the one thing that they can count on me is that I'm not going to BS something. And so, because that's where I think this field in general has kind of gotten itself into trouble is if you look back at it, I mean, all the way up until I believe maybe the early seventies, you could get an actual degree in parapsychology. It was something that still had some semblance of, you know, it was credible. Mm -hmm. But when you look at say an actual scientist, they like to think and look very at things that are natural or that make sense. Lying and fabricating is not something that naturally occurs. It's something that we do. And people that are serious, you know, as scientists don't want to have to look at something and go, okay, this is the reaction that's happening here, but could this reaction be faked? You don't want to have that. And so I tell people, that's the one thing that I'm not what little reputation I have, I want to remain intact. I'm not going to fake anything. And I'm willing, I tell people who hear the quote unquote evidence that I have or hear my stories. I'm like, this is a personal experience that I had. So I'm not telling you it's a ghost. To me, it's something I can't explain, but if you can explain it, great. I'm just looking for answers. So don't just say I made it up because that's not, that's not true. But rip it apart. You know, it's now your evidence as well. So let's see if we can figure it out because 
my main thing that I wholeheartedly believe, and it's where I get the most side eyes for the paranormal community, is that there is something out there and nobody has actually figured it out yet. If somebody has, none of us could doubt it. So there is no concrete evidence. There's really good stuff out there, but we don't have that one thing. I am willing to admit it's because I'm doing something wrong. I haven't figured out that right formula or the right, you know, wavelength to be recording at or the right type of video to use. Mm, yeah. And so let's all figure it out. Let's let's get rid of the BS. Let's get rid of the egos and let's just try to figure it out together. You know, it's it seems that this field has become a very cranky sort of thing where it's just like oh, I see what this group is doing. So rather than getting with them and working through it together, I'm just going to borrow it, you know, and I'm going to take it and try to replicate it. And then I'm going to walk away by saying, this is what I have. And I, you know, I'm the man or the woman, I'm the one who found this And It's like, I've been doing this for a long time. You know, I don't have time for this foolishness. Right. Yeah. I think that we're starting to see a shift in, in the subculture of the paranormal community. We're, we're starting to get more people who are like, as I said, we're in it for the journey. Yeah. And these are the people who are like, man, I got terabytes of evidence. You want to take a look at it? By all means, please. Like I'll, you know, I'll invite anyone to take a look at it. And, uh, and that's how it should be. I mean, yeah. when we, with uh, the, my, my ghost organization, I purposely, fit people into the group that run the gamut from total believers to total skeptics. And you might say non-believers. Mm -hmm. And what we do is once, once a month, when we've had an investigation, we divide up all the audio and the video and we go off and we, you know, we upload it, you know, because of COVID we couldn't meet in person, but we, we all review it individually. And then we come back together once a month, and each person shares their quote-unquote evidence. They're like, this is a bit of audio that I was listening to, and I think this is unexplainable, or here's some video. And what I like is that I, I tell people, we present it, and then we fight. But we don't really fight. But we have spirited right. debates, because what I'm looking for is at the end of the day, we all walk away saying, I don't know what that was. But it wasn't this, this, this. And if we collectively say, I don't know what that is, that's what I'm looking for. Those are those little nuggets that keep me going. When you attack it and you listen to it backwards and sideways and you do all this stuff and you still all collectively walking away from it saying, we don't know. That's what I think we should all be striving for. Yeah. No, I agree. We we tend to take the same approach. Uh, we exhaust every available option that we can it's possibly great. think great. of. Uh, and yeah, those those ones that we are left with, you know, scratching our heads are yeah. the most significant pieces because they simply can't be explained. And that's not, you know, as you said, it's not as exactly like it's not a proof of a ghost, but it's proof of something. Exactly. We exactly. have no idea what in the hell it is. Um, right. our, you know, our ghosts just like broken fragments in time. Is it that an anomaly that we're witnessing? There's a thousand different possibilities. And the more that we start to look into the weirder sides of fringe science, I think we really are collectively getting to a point where we're willing to be a little bit more adventurous and asking some of these questions. Yep. Yeah. I totally agree. Yeah. But we got to bring the science into it. I mean, we have to, that's the only way that it's, it's going to regain 
credible notation again. I mean, look at what look at what's happened with uh, UFOs in the yes. last several years. Uh, I think it's a matter of time before people start perking their ears up more often about consciousness studies. Yes, you know, and things like that. So, yeah, yeah. So speaking of investigations and investigation methods, you've been doing this for a long time. So how have your methods evolved over time? You said you went out with some ghost groups when you were younger. I'm sure that was pretty much a standard like single tape recorder and then creeping around a spooky old house. Yeah, that was um, exactly it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But obviously it evolved uh, in into something and now you kind of have a refined science behind it. What was that evolution like? It, it was a long painful <laughs> um, <laughs> journey because as you said, it was the, the first recorder that I had was a, was a reel to reel, <laughs> which, re which is really dating me. Yeah. It's, it was a reel to reel. Um, and it's interesting because I, I've gotten to the point now where basically my entire basement is just filled with all of this, you know, I mean, the first big camera that we had was, was a, it was technically a VHS, but it was those gigantic things that you had to just wander around with. The battery pack was probably like, you know, like it's gigantic. It was, it was a mess. Um, <laughs> we used, you know, we had the 35 millimeters, which were a pain because, you know, you just had to, you had to go get it developed. <laughs> you know, you had right, to, right. Yeah, you know, yeah. we had Polaroids. Um, but what, I'm starting to look the last few years I've started of sort of like I've started looking at all this stuff in the basement and thinking, did we miss something along the way? And so interestingly enough, we've started going back and using these archaic devices um, because we're like, maybe we missed something because if you look at, from when I first was using the reel to reel to where I went to a regular cassette recorder, that was a couple of years. And then it went to the micro cassette recorder and that was another year or two. But mm. then when you start looking at like the digital age, both with video, photography, audio, once that hit, you know, if you look at from the first digital camera to where we are now, there was no giant gap. It was like things were hitting and hitting and they were going faster and faster. And to go back to the audio, the theory back then was that the ghost could manipulate the electromagnetic field. And what they were saying, which again, pseudoscience, but I'm like, okay, at least there's a rationale there, was mm. that the magnetic tape heads... <laughs> could be considered part of the EMF field, the magnetic part of EMF field. Right. And that that's what was what allow, was allowing the voices to get imprinted on the tape. Again, pseudoscience, but I'm like, okay, at least that gives me a reason. Then looking at, okay, but now we're getting, we were and still are getting them on digital voice recorders. Well, where's, mm -hmm. there's no tape heads there. So how is that happening? So then we had to start looking at, okay, is it a specific frequency? And then white noise came into play. Mm -hmm. And then the yeah. idea with white noise was that's where the Frank's boxes came in. And, and, you know, basically the, the, the radio sweepers, which to me, I was always hung up on, but okay. I'm not sure if this really works because 
you still are scanning radio frequencies and you're dealing with something that is designed to receive signals. So how do you get rid of picking up those, the disc jockeys or the voices in between, Mm -hmm. but yet we would start to get results that contradicted that because we would get, you know, we, we would get the, like the, that that little one where you're like, okay, that's a DJ or something, but then we would get, a sentence every once in a while that was going across multiple frequencies. And what we started doing was going, that shouldn't be happening. And then we would watch. And as it scanned and came back, there was nothing at that frequency anymore. So it's like, what was that? Where did that Mm -hmm. come from? Um, And to sort of wrap all that together, we've started now looking at, is it less about the frequency and is the white noise actually doing something? So we've started doing experiments with just the white noise. Cause we, <laughs> I was watching the original poltergeist last year and I'm like, man, look at that. The, the voices were coming through the television and the white noise, because now I'm dating myself again, that, you know, after the TV stations went off at the end of the night, it went to static. It went to white noise. No, I and remember if you, those days. If you go back <laughs> in, um, look at sort of the ITC communications, there were experiments that were done with old VHS cameras where they were sort of recording that static in a loop. Right. So, yeah. And so we've started doing experiments with that where we do um, a variation of the Estes method where we're, we're not changing the frequency, we're just having that white noise being pumped in, but mm-hmm. still taking away the sight, if you will. But then along with that running, we've got that old VHS going into the loop of the static on the old, basically broke the tuner off of an old television <laughs> so that you've got that loop going through with the static. So we're experimenting with that. So okay. to answer your question, which was <laughs> like an hour ago, um, We've started looking back at the old methods that we used and or that I used and saying, is there something that was in there that because that technology was sort of going and, and evolving so quickly that we lost something? You know, if you look at even spirit photography, ghosts weren't orbs <laughs> until the digital camera came along. Right. And yeah. so you ended up with there being backlash with no, all orbs are dust or they're mo- moisture. And I think the vast majority are, but I think we still need to go back and go, but are they all? Or is there something that was in there that was paranormal that it all got, you know, the baby with the bathwater, it all got thrown away. Right. So now when we do investigations, it is not uncommon for us to see i don't have my original reel-to-reel but i've got the regular desk size like a stenographer kind of thing right right um, yeah yeah <laughs> for us to do and we've done it at several um we did it at waverly we also did a hillview manor where we have a hallway and at both ends of the hallway we're going to have a micro cassette recorder a regular cassette recorder digital voice recorders and then studio microphones and they're all sitting right next to each other and they're all that they, we turn them on at the same time. We timestamp them, and mm-hmm. it's like, okay, what are these going to record? Um, 
the probably the biggest evolution that we did was to try to control the environment as much as possible. Um, and that is where if we are going into, it's a lot easier to do it for our residential investigations, but if we are going into a, you know, a, a pay to play type hunt, you know, mm-hmm. um, where we have it for the whole night, we will try to just have ghosts of Ohio members in there, or if they are people that are coming that they're, you know, friends or something, cause we got to keep the cost down. Right. Um, it's almost like they're vetted. So we, we know them, um, one, to make sure that they're going to adhere to what we're doing, but also because we have, um, we've started looking at, does the makeup of the group in terms of personalities, beliefs, what they're feeling going into that, does that have an impact on an investigation? So we will work through that to the point where, um, after we set up all of the equipment, we will have free time for like 20 minutes. Sometimes we have done experiments with doing a guided meditation. Other people have gone off and, you know, said prayers or done something on their own. The idea being what traditionally would happen is we'd get there, we'd down a whole bunch of caffeine, we'd run around, we'd set up all this equipment, and then we were like, okay, ready? Investigate. And then they turn out the lights and you're sitting there and you've got the, the jitters. You're looking around and you're like, oh, shoot, I got to pay the mortgage when I get home tonight. And <laughs> I probably got to leave by one because the gas station closes at two and I got to get gas or I'm not making it home. It's it, We found it was a way to sort of cleanse ourselves emotionally to be like, okay, I've got all this stuff going on, but right now. That's all got to be put on hold because I am here to investigate and I want to, I want to sort of open myself up to having that experience and put myself in the right frame of mind. Yeah. And, and we found that that has worked. And then what we will do is we'll get together and say, okay, so on the tour, John, where were you getting pulled to? What area, you know, was, was calling for you? And mm-hmm. we will then divide into small groups and then we will mark it down and go, okay, you know what? Uh, the basement was calling you, John, you and your, the two people in your group, you're going down into the basement and you will be there from 10 o'clock until 11 o'clock. Mm-hmm. You can go wherever you want in the basement, but you stay in that area and you do not leave. And then what we will do is do that with all the other groups. The reason for that is we want to make sure that we know where everybody is and where they're accounted for. So you don't have to worry about footsteps from somebody having to go up yeah, the stairs minim- behind you. So minimize the interference as much as, as possible. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And we will also, as we're going on the tour, we don't want, we, we rarely ask for the full blown ghost tour yeah. because we, we don't want to have that in the back of our minds. Because we want to actually go around and as we're walking through, we want to say, okay, look, that window is, there's no glass in that window and that's facing the highway. You know, we're going to be, we're going to hear stuff coming from that. That window's open and you can't close it. And that's near a park, you know? Uh, So we're trying to set ourselves up so that we can work towards controlling the environment as, as much as possible. Yeah. Well, I mean, you have to, it's uh, and that's, 
the, that's the same approach that we took, uh, especially when we went to the Sally house, we kept a very, very small group. Yeah. You know, so we knew where everyone was at all times. Um, although that got really interesting because that place played with sound a lot. Really? Like, yeah. People would be talking upstairs and it would sound like they were outside on the front porch or, um, mm. Uh, at one point, one of my team members was calling down to us for a good two to five minutes and nobody heard him. And he was like yelling at us. And that house is small. You should be able to hear anybody. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we, we had definitely had like the aud- audible paranormal bubble happen to us a few times. It was interesting. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I wish I, I wish there was a way to actually capture that, though. But there's there's not. Well, actually. I don't know. There, there is a good possibility that Alejandro's recorder was going upstairs while we were downstairs. I'm going to have to look into that. Anyway, um, yeah, that, yeah, I mean that's interesting that you bring that up because something that we kind of fell into is um, we call them audio doppelgangers, and it's it's something that has become fascinating. But it's also something that's incredibly frustrating <laughs> because mm-hmm. when we found it, uh, it was a couple of years ago, but it made us go, what other versions of this were going on that we did not pick up on? Because, I mean, a, a, a quick story about it. It's, it's one of the strangest things ever is that um, going back to on investigations, the other thing that we do is we tell people you have to claim any noise you or your body makes on the investigation, right. yeah. because since we divide it up, it might be a case of, you know, the person that you were sitting there and you shifted in your chair and it made a noise, but if you don't call it out and you're not the one reviewing that part of audio, it can come across as being an unexplained noise. Um right. We've shortened it over the years to now we just have to say that was me <laughs> if you make <laughs> if you do make the noise. But um we were doing an investigation of a, a public library. And at one point during the investigation, I'm reviewing the audio, and at one point I hear myself come up and I'm not gonna whisper, but I I, I whisper on the recording and I say, No, what's it set on? And when I heard that, I'm like, oh my gosh, I broke my own rule because I have a rule, which is like, do not whisper on investigations because you don't use your vocal cords on when you whisper and it's a pain in the butt to try to figure out who it is. Mm-hmm. And, and we, on our investigations, we have um, audio files of every member. And what we do to create that is it's three sentences from when the ghost speaks by Leslie rule. And what we do is we record each ghost member on a studio microphone and they're right up against the mic. They say those three sentences and then they whisper those three sentences. Then we back them up six foot, read the same three lines again, whisper it. And then we back them up to 12 foot. And what we do is we then have a file for everybody. So that if we hear somebody talking, we can go back and go, okay, these three people were in the room at the time. Let's compare the audio and see if it's the same voice. But we, I always tell people, but do not whisper because that makes it harder to go back. And so I was sort of embarrassed and 
I just marked it down that that was me. The monthly meeting came around and we're going through things. And Mark, um, he's a member for, I think he's pushing 20 years. He's been with me. He is a, he's a legitimate scientist. And there was a bit of a mix up in that he had also reviewed that same file and he's presenting what he believes is evidence. And he plays the clip of me whispering, no, what's it set on? And I'm like, oh no. And I'm like, that was me. I'm sorry. I, I whispered. I know I shouldn't. I'll never do it again. I apologize. And he's like, it's not you. And I'm like, it is me, Mark. You, it, it's me. And everybody's like, no, it's it's clearly him. We, and he's like, it's not you. You weren't in the room at the time. And I wasn't. I wasn't even in the building at the time. Oh, whoa. And really? then we went back and pulled the video that was synced. We timestamped it. There's nothing near that microphone when that happens. Really? There were, uh, there's three other studio microphones that were in the building at the time and including there were, I'm going to say two, there were multiple digital recorders. Hmm. That is the only microphone that picked that up. And when we looked at my audio file of me whispering from the book and compared it to the know what's it said on, it's similar but the audio people who looked at it are like, but it's not the same person making that. And we were like, that That's is crazy. Fascinating. But it, like I said, it got, it, it's frustrating now because we were like, if there hadn't have been that mix up where Mark actually did double duty, I had marked that off as just being me. So we were like, how much of a pain in the butt is that going to be to now not only going through the hours and hours of audio and video and looking at all the photographs, but now we have to, every time we hear somebody talk go, is that person in the room? So, but to me, it's a fascinating thing because, and then I'm like, of all the people that were on the investigation, why are you trying to talk like me of all people? It's like, (laughs) Well, here's a question about that. Like, so you uh, you mentioned the, the audio doppelganger thing. Ever since you stumbled across that, have you noticed it showing up more and more? Or for that matter, have you gone back and listened to some of your earlier uh, investigations and, and found them there as well? We haven't found anyone we've gone back, but we found, oddly enough, we had had another instance at the same library of... A doppel, an audio doppelganger. And that's, um, was not me. I had heard it, but it's, it's a bit, it's different from this other one. We, the, at the back of this library, um, if you were to come in through the back door, you kind of enter this hallway and you, when you go to the other end of the hallway, there's like a, a, a fire door, which you open that and then you're in the library. But mm-hmm. off of that, if you go about halfway down the hall, and go to your left, there's a door there that opens into a little common area. And then there's two offices off of that. In one of those offices was um, a gentleman. It was his office. It was a very small office. He had his back to the door. And he said that he would hear a woman call his name from behind him. Um, but every time he turned around, there was nobody there. Mm-hmm. Um, I went in there to do 
a session because I'm like, okay, well, I'll pretend I'm him. You know, I'll be the ghost bait and see what happens. And so I was sitting at the desk and I had um, a digital voice recorder sitting at the desk next to me, pointing towards uh, the doorway in the common area. In the common area, we had a studio microphone that was pointing into the room. If you came out of that common area, back through that door, out into the hallway, and crossed over to the other end of the hallway, there was one of those sliding doors that then, if you went in there, it went the whole length of the back of the building. It was like a like a meeting room uh, mm-hmm. for presentations, things like that. At the far end there was where Wendy was sitting. One of, another member has been with me almost almost 20 years now that I think about it. She was sitting there at our, you know, command center. Cause that sounds cool. But you know, she's got the <laughs> monitors. She's got the headphones on. She's listening to the audio. Everybody else is out in the library proper, but I'm sitting there for about 20 minutes and I don't feel anything. I don't, there's nothing really going on. And then I hear Wendy laughing, you know, here at my ears. And so I said on the recording, that's Wendy laughing in the other room sit there for another 20 minutes or so. Nothing's going on. The session is ending. Like end of session, I pick up my recorder and I go in and Wendy is still sitting there. She's like listening to the uh, the audio that's going on. I'm like, I don't think there's anything really going on. And she's like, no, there isn't. And she's watching and listening to the group that's out in the library. And I'm like, is there anything going on with them? And she's like, no. And I said, well, what did you laugh at then? And she's like, I, I didn't laugh. And I'm like, no, you did. I heard you laugh. And she's like, I didn't laugh. So we got into a little bit of a disagreement. And I took my digital voice recorder, the one that had been sitting right next to me, and I played it back. And there's nothing there. And then you hear, that's Wendy laughing in the other room. So she's like, see, I told you I didn't laugh. And I'm like, no, I heard you. I heard you. And I got really frustrated. And then I remembered there was a studio microphone that was out in the common area facing into the room. Go back and listen to that. And you hear me again, say that's Wendy laughing in the other room. But before that, there is what's been described as a combination of Wendy laughing and a witch cackling. Mm. And it is so loud. And I'm like, that's what I heard. And you compare that. We call it the Wendy laugh. Mm -hmm. You compare that. To the real Wendy laughing, it's similar, but it's not the same. Even stranger is that we went and tried to do, I went and sat back in the same area and then had Wendy laugh from where she was at the time. Couldn't hear her. Yeah. You couldn't hear her at all. So it's like, (laughs) how does that work? And again, what getting back to the, what frequency are these things coming through? Because the. No one heard me whispering, no, what's it set on? So you're like, okay, well, maybe that's coming in at a different frequency, but the record, you know, the studio mic could pick it up. The studio mic with the Wendy laugh did pick that up. I was heard that, that with my real ears. Was that plugged into an analog recorder, like the reel to reel? The uh the studio microphone? Yeah. No, no, it was just basically hardwired into a uh a Korg uh, mixing board, basically. Okay. Um, okay. So, and, and both of those were in both instances, when I say studio microphone, we run the cables, put it right into the mixing board. So we record them as individual tracks, but they are connect. They're not wireless basically. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that 
that microphone picked it up. The digital recorder, which is wireless, did not pick it up. But yet I heard it with my ears. So you're like, we're trying to figure out, is there a certain frequency or something? You know, it's, those are where I wish I was, you know, I was had a reality show because I could just go, it was a ghost moving on, you know, and I wouldn't be staying up nights trying to look at it and go, well, what if it was this? Or what if we could, because what we love to do is then go back and try. We've been back to that library several times and we can't recreate it. So we, we've really? had other weird things happen with, we've had, like I said, multiple things with this doppelganger audio doppelganger happens, but it's never the same voice that it's disguising itself out. If you want to say that. And it's also never in the same place of the library. So it's just, again, huh. wh- how does it work? <laughs> so like this, this is a place you still get a chance to go to on a, a semi-regular basis, yes. right? Yeah. And it's, it's continued the, uh, the doppelganger effect. It has. And there's been other instances where things have, um, happened, you know, where we've gotten other activity and interestingly enough, something else that we started, um, experimenting with going back to trying to make ourselves not only more open to having the experience, but making whatever's there want to hang out with us and want to communicate with us. And one of the things that we were able to do at this library, which we oddly enough recently were able to do at another library was introduce period music into it and why we were able to do it at this particular, the doppelganger library, we'll call it is that um, they contacted us and we found in the historical records that the first uh, head librarian was murdered in the, the building in the Um, library. Correct. Um, And her, I'm going to say 10 year old son, I might be wrong with the age, but young son was unfortunately there when um, she was shot and killed. Um, we started looking into things and I call these like my two bottle conversations because you need like mm. two bottles of your <laughs> favorite adult beverage to try to unpack this. But the the library itself is in the same exact location as the original library. The only difference is the current library is one story. The library that she was murdered in was two stories and she was shot and murdered on the second story. So uh, then we were like, okay, well, how does that, how does that work? You know? Um, so in going to try to figure out how to make ourselves more open to having the experience, um, one of the easiest things was one of our, our members of the ghost of Ohio, Sam, she is an actual librarian. So we're like, let's bring her and she can mm-hmm. try to talk to it. But then we found that the, the son actually, after the event, he became a sort of like a vaudeville, uh, musician singer. And he played all these different instruments and, huh something that seems totally unrelated, but I'm like, no, this has got to be synchronicity, is that I, at the time, had inherited a broken 1926 Victrola that I was trying to get fixed up. Oh, and, wow. And found 
1930 recording of the guy singing a song that was originally entitled, I'm going to get it wrong, but it was How I Miss My Dear Old Home or something like that. He changed the lyrics and the title to How I Miss My Dear Old Mother. And we were like, that's got to be a connection. So what we did is I played it on the Victrola, recorded it, and then brought it to the library. And we sat it down and we said out loud, we all got together and said to the, the, the spirit of the deceased librarian, we don't know if you're here, but we know what happened to you. And we think that is horrible. We also don't know if you are aware of what happened to your son, but guess what? He turned out okay. It's probably because of you. And we would be honored if you would allow us to play his music for you in case you've never heard it. We went and got in our position and we just filled the library with his song. It was kind of very <laughs> Shining-esque. It was because it was. Um, but then we had things start happening. We picked up the sound of what sounds like someone walking up three or four steps onto like a wooden floor and then a door opening and closing. And it was in a part of the library where there was, there's nothing there. It's just a solid wall. It's in the front corner of the, the library. Hmm. But then we came to find out that, as I said, this was the same exact site of the original library, but it's not the original. The original library had, three wooden steps leaning up to a door right in that spot. Uh, so that gets back to the idea. Did, did we trigger that by just being nice or doing that? Or was that something that was going to happen anyway? It was more of a residual thing and we just happened to be in the right place at the right time. Um, but it gave us enough pause that we now will start to, um, we look at, we're like, you know, most people like some kind of music. So music is kind of like a common thread. So we start looking at ways that we can make ourselves more inviting or at least the environment more open to the spirits. And we try to use music whenever possible. And it's, it's started to work. At least it appears to be starting to work. And all of that came from the idea that I've become notorious for where I tell people that I watch the ghost shows, but I root for the ghosts. Oh, yeah. Because it's it's when people come in and it's like, if I was a ghost and I'm just sitting in my home and these people come in and start ordering me to do things, I'm going to get mad. And Yep. These people are going to think that it's a demon. No, you've just come into my home and you've been disrespectful and you've annoyed me. So we've kind of tried to flip it. And that's where it's spun out of, let's just be nice. I mean, because again, two bottle conversation, but what if these spirits are actually trapped here, you know, and they finally think that they have an opportunity to talk and it's some jackhole that they don't want to really even, right. even talk yeah. to, you know? So, so I think going in there and just being respectful and just, I tell whenever I get to my area where I get myself centered and I start talking, when I think that there's something happening, I openly say, I have been looking for you my entire life. If you could just come closer, I don't know if I can help you, but I, if you could just let me see you, 
the the best part is if my wife is on investigation and she hears me saying that, she gets scared because she knows, uh oh, weird Willis thinks something's going to happen. But 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 I think I think that the time for for pretending you're going to go into battle against a ghost and do, I mean, we're done with that. It makes for good yeah. television, but it's like, if you really want to have that experience, just be, just be a nice person. Just yeah. be open to having that experience. And it, it works a heck of a lot more than when you're going in there like, well, why don't you get me? Yeah, that's uh, we've never taken the antagonistic approach. And I don't think we ever will. That's not who we are at all. If, uh, you know, if something doesn't work, we'll try something else. But it's it's never, yeah. The the whole why don't you come out and scare me routine. Right. I just oh god, you said it makes for good television, but I'm telling you, man, I cannot watch a single episode of any of those ghost shows. I can't. <laughs> I just like I get ten fifteen minutes in, I'm like, this is absolute garbage, and it is giving the rest of us a terrible name. Like we got no. Yeah, there, no. there was a, for a while, we used to kind of joke that when I uh, moved to new house with my wife, that how high all the televisions had to be mounted on the wall because I was too portly to kick that high. <laughs> so I couldn't kick in the televisions, but, um, and and I, I, I can't confirm or deny that, but I, there's might be some truth to that, but, but I think. I Sorry, think I may have broken just, the screener to myself. Yeah, it's I, I I think what is actually just why I find these shows a bit disheartening is as I said earlier, there's always been, and the ghost shows kind of made it a bit worse, that people came in to a ghost group and thought going on an investigation was going to be like going to a Halloween haunted house. And I right. think that we lost some members of this community that really could have moved the, the the field forward if they had just been more level setting involved. And now I think what these shows and social media have actually done, which I don't know if we can actually ever recover from, is that you have people now, you know, I'm the paranormal pappy. So when I came in the field and was trying to get caught up on what was going on in the field. I read Hans Holzer. I looked at Harry Price and how he did, you know, I went and I did research into, well, how do I look for a ghost? Unfortunately, these reality shows are what the next generation of ghost hunters are looking at as being, the founders of this field, because that's all they know. And if you look at what a lot of these ghost reality shows, you know, I don't want to name names, but if you if if you ask any of these people that are getting involved now and they say, so who's who's a really good ghost hunter out there? Yeah, I guarantee pretty... you who they're gonna say. Yeah. I and know it. and then when you look at, but what is what are they really doing that's actually bringing this field forward. They're not looking at evidence. They're not ripping apart their own evidence. And I get that because that's boring. It's, you know, I love it, 
but it doesn't make for good television when for eight hours they're staring at an image on a screen, even though it's a video <laughs> and it never moves. I mean, I know it. I know it. It's, it's what I like, like. People keep asking me like how, how the investigation thing has been going. I'm like, well, I got to tell you 80, 90% of the time, absolutely nothing. It's incredibly boring, but that 10% man is something fascinating. It really is. But that's the, the real truth of it, the people who are looking for substantial evidence for something that we can scientifically talk about with, with, you know, something we can bring to the table. That's, it takes a lot of time and it can be a little bit boring. <laughs> but, but you and your group are to be commended for that, that you're willing to put in the boring work and that you're willing to walk away from it going, we didn't really get anything there. Because you're not, there also seems to be the idea that if you go into an investigation and you go to one of these pay to play locations and you put down your two bits, you know, and you've spent all this money to go in there, there's a lot of the, these newer groups that are like, and we're finding something because I paid some money to go in there, you know, and yeah. that all of a sudden becomes detrimental because we, we, kind of been toying with this idea of where like, well, who's writing the narrative here? Because you'll have somebody that comes in and you'll go to a location, a famous place, and they'll, you know, and you'll hear all the stories. And then you'll go back there like a year later and they're like, well, there's little Timmy and he was hit by a train and his ghost hangs out on the roof. And sometimes he crawls down the chimney and we're like, where did that come from? Well, this right. ghost group came in and they heard, ha, ha on a ghost box. And you're like, who's writing this narrative here? Do, do you have records of this Timmy guy? And why is he in the fireplace and going up the chimney? And they're like, well, I don't know. They actually said, did you die in the fireplace? And it said, eh. and all of a sudden that becomes reality. And you're like, yeah, it exactly. Yeah. I know exactly what you mean. And it takes, it, it takes way more than that. And, uh, but then again, you know, that's, that's the difference. It's like, you know, people like us, we're not out there trying to, uh, you know, make bucks for the scares. Like we're driven by the journey and that is, uh, evidence-based and fact-based what we can prove. Right. That's, that's the stuff. It's not, um, dramatic cue music. Oh, ah! you know? Yes. Yeah. Or they're like, what was that noise? You know, and they go to commercial and like, oh yeah. boy, something scary is going to happen. Fun you actually go out there and do this stuff uh, long enough, then yeah, you will probably get your bell rung and it's going to be nothing like what you see on television. Correct. Yeah. 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 Well, regarding all of your time in this field and your own research that you've done, uh, what's been some of the most impressive uh, evidence that you yourself have picked up? The ones that stand out to you the most? I I think definitely the the two audio doppelgangers kind of spring as to the front as being sort of the newer ones. I I think one of the older ones, uh, so this is going back to maybe, wow, 2001 maybe, that it was, uh, what normally seems to happen is that we either have the equipment doing something that we can't figure out why it's doing it, or we mm. see something, you know, it's never like this sort of combination. And, to give you a, a, a bit of background, I mean, this is the one where I think in Ohio, definitely, when I said, I'm on to something, I don't know what it is, and I can't explain it, but 
looking back at the research, all of the pieces suddenly fit into place. And we were doing, uh, it was a, a private residence and the, the, it was an old family home and the son was, had actually contacted us. And what had happened is the, uh, mother had died and it was just a husband and wife. And then the one son, the wife slash mother had died in the house, but of, of natural causes, they were older, probably about a year before us being contacted. And then about six months after that, the father slash husband also died in the home again, natural causes. The son, since he was married, had his own home. He was basically fixing up the house and getting ready to sell it. Mm -hmm. And that's when people started telling him somebody got in the house see people walking around inside the house, but you know, we just see like, cause the blinds are down. We just see like shadows, which is weird. Cause there's no lights on or something, you know? Um, and a lot of the figure, the figures were down in the basement where they had like an old pool table. Um, so he contacted us to try to see if we could figure out what was going on. And so we were stationed throughout the house and I was at the top of the stairs looking down um, a hallway. Just you know, doors on either side, on the left and the right bathroom. There was a bathroom and a couple of bedrooms. And then the hallway just ended. And I've got behind me in the top of the stairwell, a video camera. I think it might've been a VHSC. So we were really moving up in the world back there. So, <laughs> so we had one of those with the old fashioned like infrared extender that was like Ooh. screwed down onto the top and stuff that used to get really hot. And that's going down, you know, facing down the hallway. And I have got a uh, non-contact laser thermometer, you know, and I'm pointing it down the hallway, taking my readings, you know, and I'm writing and stuff. I don't even think I, no, I didn't even have a headlamp back then. So, you know, this is like totally old school, but, mm -hmm. um, and it's the only staircase up and down. So I've got my back to there and I'm, got the laser thing and it's going and these this particular one that i had you know it would it needed a solid object and once it hit that solid object it would bounce back and the back of the device would light up and it would tell you the temperature but if it was you know if like you took it outside and just shot it the beam would go forever until it hit you know a solid object so it was mm -hmm. taking the reading off of it um nothing is going on and then I would say about know, 20 minutes into it or so the door frame in the, in the um, room on the right-hand side, the, if you're looking at it, it'd be the left-hand side, the furthest part of the door frame away from me. It all of a sudden it was like two or three degrees colder. And I made a note that I'm like, okay, I got to see if there's a window open or something like that. But then the temperature just plunged. And looking back at my notes, it dropped about 30 degrees in 30 seconds, oh. which you're like, well, that's, that's weird. You know, and you always hear the stories of the cold spots, but this was the first time I actually saw, or, you know, that the door frame was getting colder. So I'm like, is something touching it? But then I like to say, and that's when the cold spot decided it wanted to come out in the hallway. Because the what I thought was measuring the door frame because it needed a solid object to hit, mm 
it was an area, I don't know, a couple of feet wide, maybe two feet high mm-hmm. on either side was in the middle of the hallway at the very end. If I shot the laser, it would hit this invisible thing and the beam would hang in midair, which is not oh, possible. If I, and if you held the, the on button down, you could kind of scan entire areas and it, the reading would just change. You take your finger off and it would go off. If I move the beam up or down outside of that area, the beam would shoot out and then hit the back wall and the temperature would go up. But say I did it over the top, if I dropped it down, it would all of a sudden hang in midair and be like 30 degrees colder. So I'm sitting there trying to make my notes. And that's when I say that the cold spot decided it wanted to come visit with me because this cold spot's coming down the hallway slowly at me. And I could tell it was because when I was shooting the beam into it, the length of beam is getting shorter and it's coming down the hallway. And so (laughs) as as I'm sitting there thinking, okay, well, this is what I wanted to have happen. And I, I distinctly remember not being scared, but just being in awe of the fact that this should not be happening. The, mm-hmm. the, the beat, because the beam, as I said, it needed a solid object. There was no solid object, but that beam was stopping. It got to with that cold spot got to within, I would say, I, I joke and say it was like six inches. It felt like six inches, but it was probably like 12 feet away from me. And all of the electrical equipment, the, the video camera and everything just shut off. <laughs> and then I felt a really cold breeze go past me and down the stairs. And again, I joke and say, so I, I stood up and checked my britches. And then <laughs> I turned, <laughs> I turned the cameras and everything, you know, off and then back on again. They all worked fine. It was like they just got zapped and just shut down. They were all still in the on position, but they were off. The battery packs that were in them were still charged. It was, but they just shut off. Um, Later in that, that evening, we couldn't repeat that. Later in the evening, I was downstairs with another investigator and we saw not balls of light, but like, tall stick-like thing, a thing moving around the pool table, which at at first, this might help describe it. The first reaction was that it's like a car headlight coming through like a, a horizontal slat of like a blind, you know? So it was tall and thin. And so we thought, but it wasn't, it was giving off its own light. And of course, we're down there. We didn't have a ca- we didn't have the video camera down there. They were all up on the other floors, um, but we watched that, and we do have audio of it, which is hysterical because you hear me say, "I don't know, could it be like a bug or something?" <laughs> At which the other investigator, who didn't last very long after that, said, "That's not an effing bug. <laughs> There's no effing bug that big, and it's too cold for effing bugs down here." Um, Each time we went back several times after that, and each time we did to varying degrees, 
the activity would start in the middle of the night with a cold spot, or sometimes it was a breeze. Sometimes we couldn't even get the thermometer, the laser to stop, but it would always start with a cold something coming out of the room at the end of the hallway and then going down the stairs. And it would always end with some sort of light anomaly going around the pool table. Really? Um, so now comes the grill kicker. So we presented all of this to the son, the, the, the owner. And we said, we're not sure what, sure what's going on here. And he's, but, but, you know, do with it. We can just say, we cannot explain this activity. And he goes, well, that's weird because that room at the end of the hallway was my dad's room. And we were like, well, I thought the master is on the first floor. And he said it was, but they had been married for a very long time. And after my mom passed away, my dad couldn't bear to sleep in that room anymore. So he moved upstairs as far away as he could to the far end of the hallway. But mm. because he, you know, obviously he missed his wife and, you know, was just very sad in the house. He started suffering from bouts of insomnia. And when he couldn't sleep at night, He'd get up in the middle of the night and he would go downstairs and play pool. I was, uh, I was going to ask if the, uh, the line of light looked like a pool stick by any chance. You know, we've looked at it when we did get the smaller versions on it and it maybe it does, but it doesn't look like it's at the right height and it never bends or, but, but again, it could have been the mm. odd thing is that we said, I, we have no evidence to support this, but it's possible it could be your dad. And again, we kept saying, you do with this what you will. The son took it to mean it was his dad and that his dad was saying, don't sell the family house. Again, I have no evidence to substantiate any of this, but he right. took it off the market. Um, probably been a few years since we've actually talked but once they took it off the market and he started, he it's apartments now, um, all the activity stopped. Really? So yeah. that's always been a story that I'm like, that's what led me when I was in Ohio to go, there's something here in Ohio. There's something here. Yeah. Ohio is a weird state, man. It's, uh, <laughs> it is. <laughs> it, it, it really is. It's some of the most unassuming states in this nation uh, end up being the the weirdest and wildest. Like I'm still blown away by all the wild stuff I've found here in North Carolina alone. Mm -hmm. Well, James, I want to thank you so much for coming and joining us on XV Planus. It's been a blast uh, talking with you. And it's a bummer that you won't be able to visit us when we go to do USS North Carolina yeah. in August. <laughs> yes. But I promise I'll keep you posted on the next one, man. Open invite to come along. Definitely. Um, yeah. Yeah. I love it. Thank you. Yeah. We obviously approach things uh, very similarly. So let's, uh, yeah, open invite, my friend. Now, where uh, where can we find you uh, for those who are interested? You can uh, find me all over the place. Um, probably the easiest is if you go to my author site, which is strangeandspookyworld.com. If you want just the ghosts, it's uh, ghostsofohio.org. And then I'm lurking around all these social media things. So basically, if you type Weird Willis into a search engine, you you will find me. I can vouch for this. It actually <laughs> does work. Uh, that's, I mean, that's how I was told to find out about them and Man, it works. <laughs>
All right. Well, James, thank you so much for uh, coming on and joining us. We'll definitely be talking to you soon and uh, hopefully be able to join you on some investigations. I love it. Yeah, that'd be great. Thank you for having me. Yeah, anytime, man. You have an open door policy to come here and talk weird with us. I love it. I'm going to take it up on you. Take you up on it. (laughs) All right, my friend. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. I'd like to thank James Willis for joining us here tonight to share his experiences and knowledge and discussing the ever-evolving field of paranormal research. We hope to have him back on for the Waverly series to discuss his experiences being a seasoned field investigator in that behemoth of a location. Once again, we will have links to all of James's work in the show notes, including links to My Strange and Spooky World and Ghosts of Ohio, and I highly encourage you to look into his work and support him. Now, speaking of Waverly... Remember that Part 1 will debut on July 9th, provided I don't become the victim of yet another cyber attack. Yes, that has been a thing as of late, but I think we have it under control. The Waverly Hills series is going to be supersized, almost as large as the building itself, and there will be a considerable amount of bonus materials on the Patreon. By the time the Waverly series concludes in September, we may have some exciting announcements to make, especially for those of you that are close to the home base of Black Lodge. But you'll just have to wait and stay tuned to find out what we've got brewing in our cauldron. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Twitch, everywhere as XVPlanus. And you can follow my personal misadventures and music projects at Folds and Floods on those same platforms. Links for both are in the show notes. If you like what we do here, head on over to iTunes or Spotify to rate and review us. Tell your friends about us. Tell your families about us. Hell, yell at random people on the street about us. You can also support us by going to www.patreon.com slash xvplanus and subscribing and gain access to exclusive content. XVPlanus is part of the Green Mushroom Podcast Network. For more great shows like the one you just listened to, go to www.tgmpodcastnetwork.com. That's www.tgmpodcastnetwork.com. This show is produced in Durham, North Carolina, and is written, edited, and scored by yours truly. Music from the show can be found on my Bandcamp page for Folds and Floods or anywhere you stream your music. No part of this show or its music may be reproduced without consent. Copyright Folds and Floods Productions. Once again, I am your host, Flood, and this has been XV Planus. Thank you for being a part of the journey so far. I'll see you in the between. In Abambratio and Fluctus Subvelo. <laughs>